Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, just how do voters feel about the economy? We'll take a look at one of the more closely watched metrics as we head toward November. Plus, at least one Seattle City Council district looks like it's about to become just a bit more conservative. And a local lawmaker gets a second job that's raising a few eyebrows. Edward Snowden goes from being a trusted intelligence analyst to wanted felon and now to being a Russian pawn. And Bremerton's praying football coach may have won in court, but his case hasn't really had the effect that many of his supporters may have wanted. All of that coming up this hour, but we begin with the state Supreme Court heard a case that could decide if King County's jury selection process is racist. To give you some background, in 2018, Paul Rivers, a black man, was charged with assaulting his white girlfriend. He was convicted, and under Washington's three strikes law, he was sentenced to life in prison. However, his lawyers argue that he was denied a fair trial because there was racial bias in jury selection. Attorney Kate Huber said in oral arguments that this isn't about the 12 jurors that were seated, but rather... Mr. Rivers was not given a jury pool from which he could draw his jury. That was a fair cross-section of the community. That is where the violation is. She argues that King County's system of jury summons significantly underrepresents minorities, and she's asking the court to mandate proportional representation in jury pools. Joining me now is Jessica Levin. She is an assistant director at the Korematsu School for Law and Equality at Seattle University. There hasn't been a lot of press on this case so far, but it, it certainly struck me as interesting that these lawyers are asking for the court to implement a new way jurors are selected here in Washington state. Yeah, the case does have tremendous implications for uh, increasing diversity in jury pools, right? So this is not a case about exactly how juries are selected and, and, and you know, how they end up being on uh, in the jury box, but instead the entire pool of jurors who come to the courtroom from which jury selection occurs. So this has to do with uh, an opportunity really for the court to address uh, what we have long known, which is that race plays a deeply problematic role in the criminal legal system. And we've known this for a very long time. Our state Supreme Court has made really meaningful changes to address racial bias in jury selection, right? So the actual process of getting jurors into the box um, and also jury deliberation. So this case is an opportunity to work upstream of the actual jury that's impaneled for trial by ensuring adequate diversity in the jury pool. So for those who don't really know, how is the jury summons process enacted? How is it that jurors are selected to be in the pool? We're talking about who ends up coming to the courtroom from the entire body of, of people who receive summonses. Um, and in, in this case, it's taking place in King County, right? So we're not talking about the entire, uh, you know, the entire, uh, let's say, just um, everybody who comes for jury service on the day that they receive their summons, right, or that the, the day that their summons is for, but who is assigned to a particular courtroom. So it's a subsection of every Everybody who receives summonses for jury service on a particular day. But the problem that, that this case presents is from the point at which the juror pool, right, who's in the courtroom from the beginning of jury selection, 
It has to do with if there's a lack of diversity at that point in time, just as Mr. Rivers' counsel was pointing out, that there needs to be a, be a meaningful remedy essentially to start over if there isn't adequate diversity in that pool from which the jury is selected. So that's the problem that the court is being asked to solve. And it seems that they're asking for this sort of legal test of having no variation more than 20% from the local population. That seems pretty significant. The test that Mr. Rivers is requesting is that there would essentially be the right to a new jury pool if a individual defendant was able to establish a comparative disparity of at least 20%. Um, so that's going to look different, of course, depending on the percentage of population that we're dealing with, you know, across various counties. But the part to the part to understand is that um, what Mr. Rivers and his, you know, what Mr. Rivers case really draws for the, the opportunity for the court to take is to say that we have to have a meaningful test when there is underrepresentation and that the court has a duty to step in and act when there is insufficient representation in the jury pool. It's not so much about the causes. Those causes are something that absolutely the other branches of government have a responsibility to deal with, either through increasing juror pay, um, through looking at who is eligible for jury service to begin with. So there are so many factors that go into why there is underrepresentation. That is not the issue that's before the court in this case. The issue before the court is to simply say, if if we're able to prove sufficient under, you know, that that threshold 20% comparative disparity, then there needs to be a remedy that works. And that is that a new jury pool would be brought in to the courtroom that did have sufficient representation of that of the of the person's community and that the jury selection would then take place from that point on. So why is it that jury pools are so underrepresentative of minorities? To answer that question, we turn now to one of Jessica's colleagues, Dr. Peter Collins of Seattle University, who has been conducting research on this topic. There is consistent evidence uh, that people of color uh, are not responding to summonses or reporting, and that is likely due to barriers that exist in the system. Uh, there may be other uh, reasons for that as well, uh, such as trust and belief in legitimacy in the system. But we don't have answers to those questions uh, quite yet. So you say that there are barriers in the system for minorities when they get that summons and then whether or not they ultimately report for jury duty. What are some of those barriers? Well, for example, a lot of times these patterns that we see are spread across social economic status, issues surrounding transportation. And, and certainly these barriers, it, they affect everyone, not just you know people of color, for example. But there's concentrated pockets of concentrated disadvantage in various areas in, uh, within our state. And those, in a way, prevent people from accessing the justice system, from participating in the justice system in a way. Uh, if you are an hourly wage earner and you're asked to participate in jury service and you have a family to provide for, it may be difficult for you to take the time off to do that. Um, and so we're looking at all of those uh, things and how they are interrelated to race, uh, ethnicity, and a lot of other demographics. Part of the issue is also we just haven't collected this data before. Um, it's not mandatory. It's, and, and so, you know, our efforts are groundbreaking in, in that respect. So what groups do you see are, are, are being most disadvantaged? Because when you say minorities, that, that could be any sure. number of groups. So when we look at this, we look at comparing what we see as far as people reporting in the survey 
to a baseline. And that baseline is from the census. That has shown consistently underrepresentation for Black only. And then there's other categories, and those categories shift and change based on you know what the populations look like by county. So if we're kind of down to the, the root process here, how are jury summons issued? Are, are they drawn from voter registration rolls, driver's licenses? How, how are they selected? Those are a couple of the big ways that, they, that people make it onto the jury lists. It's actually really complex. Um, and there's a lot of other social dynamics that play into this, too, because if there's a community where there is they're experiencing gentrification, they're experiencing high levels of residential mobility, meaning people moving in and out, it's hard to have a, if it's hard to have a consistent address, then it may be hard uh, or more difficult to be consistently on a jury list, a potential jury list. And so we see that as well as being part of the issue um, and you know, that's that's been a question of um, of concern, I think, for a lot of people within the system is where are the pressure points within the jury selection process? It has to do with the lists, of course. It has to deal with, you know, incentivizing it, possibly, um, you know, juror pay. It has to do with uh, providing dependent care, for example, transportation. And a lot of these things, these are all points of, of okay, well, which one which one of these targets is is going to you know impact uh, the system in the in the most significant way? So your study is is pretty groundbreaking, but what have we seen across the country? You know, aside from Washington State, how have other jurisdictions dealt with this issue of race when it comes to jury summons and and jury selection? The only other state that I believe requires collection of demographic information for potential jurors and jurors is New York. Uh, I don't think any other state is is uh, doing what we're doing or attempting to do. And how does having, and, and I'm not sure if you'd be the right person to answer this question, but how does having a more diverse jury pool help right. the justice system? So there is very strong and ample evidence that shows that having a more diverse jury results in better outcomes more consistent outcomes, more just outcomes. How do you define a, a just outcome or a consistent outcome? Is it more convictions, less convictions? How do you define that? That's a good question. I think it's not just about convictions or less convictions or somebody being set free. It's 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 being more accurate or the, there's increased accuracy. When you, you think about the effects of groupthink, for example, um, and what that does, you know, to people deciding cases, it, it it probably does have an impact on findings of guilt, actual guilt and innocence. And so that matters. And that that's how it's related to justice. That's Dr. Peter Collins of the Seattle University School of Criminal Justice. Again, the state Supreme Court is considering a case that would, at least in some way, attempt to correct the problems of race in jury pools, as attorneys are asking the justices to establish a diversity requirement of being no more than 20 percent off of the local population. The case of State Free Rivers was heard just this month, and it will likely be some time before the justices issue their ruling. Now, we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll examine one local race for Congress and hear from both candidates when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Now, a look at the race for Washington's first congressional district seat. The first district covers a lot of King and Snohomish counties, from Bellevue to Arlington, from Montlake Terrace to Monroe. 
Our partners over at Como 4 spoke with both candidates. Here's Holly Menino. This November, Democratic incumbent Susan Dalbeni will face Republican challenger Vincent Cavalieri in Washington's first congressional district race. Both say inflation, the most pressing issue right now. We have to look at not only what has driven costs up right away, but what we need to do for the long run. The child tax credit helped lift families um, and it helped lift children out of poverty across our country. Those were those checks that went to families um, that came every month. Um, not only did that help lift that families out of poverty, it gave them money to help pay for housing, for food, for diapers, for childcare. I would love to see that the child tax credit continued. I would not support any bill, spending bill, or any budget that does not include cuts across the board. So cutting up the credit card has to be number one, stop the spending. We cannot continue to borrow and spend money we don't have. So doing that and allowing the economy to start to recover slowly. Crime and violence continue to be top concerns for voters, especially when it comes to repeat offenders. What we have to do is we can't have stunts like defunding the police, cash bail reform, all these types of things that we've seen revolving door justice that really put good people in harm's way. We really need to make sure that our local communities have the resources they need and our first responders and law enforcement have their resources they need to do their jobs. We also have to build trust and have accountability. And so the package of legislation that we passed was to do both, to make sure we have resources to help address issues of staffing, but also make sure that we are continuing to invest in community policing. Abortion and women's rights also top of mind for voters this election season. I would not support nationalizing any sort of rules or regulations when it comes to abortion. And I think it's important that we have a dialogue like that because The Supreme Court, in my opinion, got it right that abortion is legal today in Washington, just as legal as it was yesterday, as it will be tomorrow. So nothing has changed. Women have the right to make their own reproductive health care decisions, period. The ongoing attacks on women's access to reproductive health care and abortion, we have to stand up against those. Um, those go against our fundamental values. They frankly go against our constitutional rights. Holly Menino, Como News. Now, while there has been no publicly released polling in the first congressional district race, the website 538.com says that Republican Vincent Cavallari has a less than 1% chance of unseating the incumbent Democrat. Meanwhile, the economy will certainly be one of the top issues for voters this November. So just how are Americans feeling about it? Kim Shepard has that story. The latest numbers on consumer confidence are surprisingly strong considering growing fears that a recession could be looming. ABC's Elizabeth Schulze has been looking over the data and what's jumping out at you so far? So there's an interesting dynamic playing out here where we're seeing consumers more confident about the economy. Their perception of how the economy is is getting better, in part because gas prices have come down and the jobs market continues to be very strong. On the other hand, you have these ongoing concerns about a recession and that the outlook is going to get worse, in part because inflation is still really high. Consumers are still playing those those record high prices. And the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates to try to tame inflation, which makes it also more expensive for consumers. So a little bit of a mismatch as far as what consumers say is happening versus some of the expectation that the economy is is set to get worse. And there are so many metrics that analysts keep track of, consumer confidence being the most elusive, I think, because you can get real numbers on things like interest rates, unemployment. But it's something that's really hard to quantify, a feeling. It's such a great point. And it is a little bit as what economists call a leading indicator. You know, generally, if 
consumers feel good, that might translate into how they actually spend their dollars. But of course, the much more tangible data is retail sales or something that would actually show how consumers are going to the store, what they're spending their money on, what they're not. And those tend to come out a little bit after the fact. So really, it's kind of a little bit of a juggling act to figure out where do consumers really stand? It's one thing if they say they're feeling good, but if they're not out spending their money, if they're pulling back on their savings or they're digging into their savings, that could be an, uh, a different story. And the other question is, is why? Why is their confidence low or high? I mean, in this situation, we've got things that you would think would make consumer confidence dip, but that's not happening. So were they able to determine why? One of the biggest things that, that changes how consumers perceive the economy is gas prices. And the reality is we saw these record high gas prices in the spring and the summer, and they did start to come down for almost 100 days in a row. We saw gas prices nationally dropping. And it turns out that as you're driving every day into work or if you're in your commute and you're looking at the, the gas price, if you see that going down day after day, that really does change your perception of prices in the overall economy. So really, that's kind of one of the biggest attributions here for kind of the, the perception of prices going down. Ironically, perhaps, prices at the gas pumps have started to go back up in recent weeks. So probably the next round of consumer sentiment data could show a little bit of a, of a change from that. And ultimately, there's a lot more that affects our, our views of inflation, your wages, how much you pay at the grocery store. And those prices still are really high still. All right. We'll be keeping an eye on those gas prices, though. That's a, it's an interesting <laughs> note. ABC's Elizabeth Schulze with the latest on consumer confidence. And that's Northwest News Radio's Kim Shepard. But inflation and other economic problems aren't just limited to the United States. Residents of Vancouver, British Columbia, have never paid more for gasoline than they are paying today. Northwest News Radio's Brian Calvert takes an in-depth look. North of the border, they post new prices on Thursdays, and today pump prices are two thirty-nine. I know it doesn't sound like much until I remind you that's per liter. And if there are 3.785 liters in a gallon, you better fill up before driving to Vancouver. Otherwise, you'll be paying what amounts to $9.04 a gallon. What a week it's been on the energy and gasoline and diesel front. Fuel analyst Dan McTeague explains how BC got to this record-setting number. Tightness in supplies along the U.S. West Coast. It's also uh, due to uh, refinery maintenance, a turnaround, if you will, uh, in Ferndale, just south of uh, Vancouver, on the U.S. side, Washington State, as well as the all-important Olympic pipeline owned by BP. Uh, that goes through semi-annual maintenance, and it looks like uh, they're up to doing it again. Those same reasons are raising prices here as well. McTeague says it's really weird because you'd never guess this by looking at oil prices. Markets are in uh, an unprecedented uh, funk. He says to expect the higher prices for a while, because even if refineries get back online, Hurricane Ian could land the knockout blow. That's uh, likely to have disruption or disruptive effect on both gasoline uh, supplies as well as oil uh, production and oil availability. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio. Now we have to take another quick break, but coming up, what exactly did the activist wife of a Supreme Court justice tell the January 6th committee when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment? Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. After days, actually weeks, if not months of negotiations, Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, testified before the January 6th committee behind closed doors this past week. Ginny Thomas is also a conservative activist and still believes that the 2020 election 
was stolen from Donald Trump. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. And uh, this was behind closed doors, as I mentioned. But what do we know about what Ginny Thomas said to the committee? Well, the most important thing is what you just said is that she still believes the 2020 election was stolen, despite no evidence that that was the case. It's extraordinary that the wife of Supreme Court Justice, um, who basically has his ear every day, has these beliefs. Uh, Well, the committee released her statement. Uh, It's interesting. She goes, I'm here voluntarily to answer questions about uh, my activities regarding the 2020 election, which I think you will find were minimal and mainstream. Of course, they were not mainstream at all. They were pretty out there when it came to making accusations about stolen elections. Uh, She talked about uh, the fact that she has a law degree, but she never practiced. Uh, And she also said that uh, when her husband became a judge back in 1990, he has only worked in legal areas. And I guarantee you that my husband has never spoken with me about a pending case at the court. It is an ironclad rule in his house. Additionally, he is, quote, uninterested in politics. And generally, I do not discuss with him my day-to-day work in politics, the topics I'm working on, who I'm calling, emailing, texting, and meeting, which means they probably have nothing to talk about at dinner time since she's not talking about what she's doing and he's not talking about what he's what, what he's doing. So that seems to be odd because most couples do talk about their work. She said that Clarence Thomas was completely unaware of texts with Mark Meadows until the committee leaked them to the press. And she goes, also, let me add, it's laughable for anyone who knows my husband to think I could influence his jurisprudence. Man is independent and stubborn with strong character traits of independence and integrity. I am now happy to answer questions. And what you probably want to know is, what were the questions and what were the answers? We don't know that yet, but we will, perhaps, uh, at the next January 6th committee hearing. So why was the committee interested in her testimony to begin with? Well, in in large part because there are so many texts of her basically giving play-by-play advice to the chief of staff of the president, the the man who literally controls the White House, uh, a step down from President Trump. Uh, And what is the wife of a Supreme Court justice doing that for? So you remember that Clarence Thomas uh, actually had to decide a number of cases involving January 6th in in terms of paper and executive privilege for former President Trump. And uh, it just defies belief that he didn't know his wife was involved in some of this because much of that was public knowledge when he was making these court decisions. So even if they didn't talk about it at the dinner table, Clarence Thomas certainly knew that his own wife uh, was biased in one way, and you would think that if you have a family member or any connection to you that has a vested interest in the outcome of a case, that you would recuse yourself. But Clarence Thomas did not do that. So I guess we're going to have to wait until the next January 6th, the postponed January 6th committee hearing to find out what exactly was asked and what exactly Ginny Thomas answered. But the other subject we wanted to talk to you about is Russia. The U.S. now responding to Russia's claimed annexations of several parts of Ukraine with additional sanctions. And what exactly is the United States doing to try to deter Russia? Because it doesn't look like anything that the United States has done so far has really had any effect. Well, it's had an effect. It, uh, it certainly, Russia has suffered financially for this year. Uh, but now other countries will suffer financially for this if they uh, even dare to support what Russia is doing in terms of recognizing that Russia has annexed this part of Ukraine and continues to do business with that or does business with this new quote-unquote part of Russia. Uh, The U.S. and uh, the European Union, NATO allies are all saying anyone who uh, recognizes what they call a sham uh, annexation 
uh, will suffer financially as well. So basically, the United States is trying to make uh, Russia the pariah that North Korea is completely isolated from the world. But there's a bigger problem here. Uh, we don't know what government is like now. We, they're inside these four areas that Russia has uh, annexed, and these are all industrial areas, by the way, that have literally been leveled by Russian bombs. Uh, Putin has vowed to rebuild them and to make them thrive again. That will cost trillions upon trillions of dollars or whatever they whatever the monetary rate is in rubles. Uh, and at the same time, Ukraine hasn't given up fighting for these areas. And there are people in these areas that do not want to be part of Russia. So uh, just waving a magic wand, uh, much like former President Trump did with the documents he said he declassified with his mind, doesn't make it so. And uh, we've yet to see what's going to happen. Now, of course, Russia has threatened to use everything upwards of a nuclear weapon if anyone threatens Russia's uh, territory, which they now claim is part of Ukraine. So if there's bombing and uh, more military action against these cities to reclaim them, Russia could indeed use some devastating weapon against Ukraine or other nations. So I guess here's the $6 million question. Where is the U.N. in all of this? Well, the U.N. has proven itself uh, uniquely ineffective in almost all of this so far. It, it has really been NATO, the United States, European Union, uh, forming its coalition to impose sanctions. The U.N., has a problem in that Russia has a veto in the National Security Council. So any actions that the United Nations takes, they uh, could be vetoed by Russia. And uh, there are people calling for Russia to be booted out of that as well. So what's the next step here? Obviously, the fighting's going to continue in Ukraine. The U.S. has imposed these economic sanctions on Russia and Russian personnel, as well as these other countries that may recognize these, uh, quote-unquote, breakaway areas of Ukraine that Putin is claiming. What are we expected to see next? Well, what's interesting is that Ukraine has uh, asked for uh, as an expedited entry into NATO. The exact thing that Vladimir Putin said he did not want to happen will now likely happen, that Ukraine will likely become part of NATO. So uh, he will have yet another NATO sitting on the edge of his own country. These are things that Putin didn't want. So, so far, this war has backfired spectacularly on, on Russia and, and specifically Vladimir Putin. I don't know if you saw the event where he was uh, talking to a room full of people celebrating this this great annexation of parts of Ukraine, and you saw the cutaway shots of the people sitting in the room literally stone-faced. There was no one celebrating there. They all looked like they were in a hostage video being held at gunpoint. Oh, the old Soviet Union reborn under Vladimir Putin. ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C., thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Jeff. All right, we have to take another quick break, but when we come back, another chapter in the story of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and it involves a man wanted by the FBI. When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pojla. And this past week, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced he has granted citizenship to Edward Snowden, the former NSA contractor that leaked classified information about the nation's surveillance program to WikiLeaks. This comes after some tough words for Russia from the Biden administration over the past weekend. 
Joining me now is ABC's Jay O'Brien from Washington, D.C., and uh, it seems like Edward Snowden once again a pawn between the U.S. and Russia. Yeah, the U.S. maintains that Edward Snowden violated the Espionage Act because his disclosures released classified information. Russia, as you know, granted him asylum back in 2013, and on Monday is when they decided to grant him citizenship. He was granted permanent residency in 2020, and his lawyer said at that time that he had applied for Russian citizenship, a Russian passport, and now he's been granted that citizenship. It comes amid protests and turmoil inside Russia. So the timing is coincidental, if you believe in coincidences. So in Russia, Putin has announced a partial draft to swell the ranks of the Russian military up to 300,000 additional troops because they're facing heavy losses in Ukraine. Military age men and their families are protesting in the streets in opposition to the partial draft in opposition to the war, and then others of military age are fleeing Russia in droves. And under that cloud of circumstances is when the Kremlin decides to announce that in addition to some other foreigners, they've granted Edward Snowden Russian citizenship. So why now? Because as you say, he's been in Russia for the last nearly a decade. Why now? Why not five years ago? I wish that's a question that I had the answer for you. Obviously, he applied for the citizenship in 2020, so it only happened after then. But why amidst this cloud of A, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but B, these ongoing protests, and C, that speech that Vladimir Putin gave last week announcing the partial draft and those thinly veiled threats that he could use nuclear weapons to protect potentially these areas in the east and south of Ukraine that Russia may annex. Why does this announcement come under the cloud of all of that? That's an open question and a good one. So what's been the response from the White House? The White House has declined to seriously comment on this. We heard the State Department make a thinly veiled joke in Snowden's direction, saying that he might be drafted into the Russian military because of that ongoing partial draft. Uh, Snowden's lawyers, what ahead of that comment from the White House, has said that he would not be subject to this partial draft because he doesn't have prior military experience, um, and that is currently the prerequisite to be conscripted into the Russian military right now uh, under this troop surge. Now, that could obviously change. One of the reasons why so many military age men are fleeing Russia right now is that they fear that even if they don't have prior military experience, that the circumstances could change, the draft could be expanded, and more people could be swept up to join the ranks of the Russian military. So that could certainly change. But as of right now, uh, on that front, uh, Edward Snowden's lawyers just said he won't be joining the ranks of the Russian military underneath this current draft. Now, Snowden, as we talked about, has been in limbo for the last decade or so. Has the U.S. still been trying to get a hold of him, trying to get him extradited back to the U.S. to face charges? Yeah, the official position of the Justice Department is that they want Edward Snowden extradited. Now, again, he had asylum granted to him in Russia in 2013. Uh, so he's been living in Russia since then. Over the course of from then to now, there have been times where his movements have been restricted, but gradually he's living more and more of, of what you could call a normal life in Russia. Um, and obviously today, with the granting of Russian citizenship, somewhat of he, he gets a lot more freedom back in terms of he said he, he wanted Russian citizenship so that his family could travel a little bit more freely, that his, their movements weren't constricted. Whether or not Snowden will travel more freely, that's somewhat of an open question. But the Justice Department's official position is that Snowden violated the Espionage Act. They want him extradited to the United States, but getting uh, what now is a Russian citizen, because he's been granted citizenship, extradited from Russia to the United States 
that is really a, a very tricky circumstance. Um, for instance, think about the case of Victor Boot, who is the Russian arms dealer that was arrested in the United States on federal charges of arms dealing. That's the individual that may or may not be swapped for Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner, right? Russia does not view his conviction, despite the fact that he was convicted by a U.S. court on charges of arms dealing, as legitimate. So they seek his return, and that's one of the reasons why they want him potentially back in a prisoner swap. So Russia doesn't typically view the convictions of U.S. criminal courts or even the charges in the U.S. as legitimate to the point where they would engage in any kind of extradition. So the closer um, Edward Snowden got to citizenship, the harder it would be to extradite him. And certainly him getting citizenship now makes that much even harder than it was. Certainly Snowden has become a hero to anti-government types, but he did some serious damage to national security, didn't he? Exactly. And that's the position of the United States government is that in the midst of of unveiling NSA surveillance programs like PRISM uh, that were championed by many as a revelation that uh, needed to be un- unveiled, as you had said. Uh, he also released classified documents and classified records that the government maintains exposed sources and methods and did real harm uh, potentially to U.S. national security. And that's the reason why the government views Edward Snowden as someone who should face charges. All right, Jay O'Brien from Washington, D.C., thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, the victory for Bremerton's praying coach hasn't really had the effect that was expected when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Abortion front and center again after a U.S. Capitol rally this past week that included the Democratic incumbent in the U.S. Senate race here in Washington. Northwest News Radio's Ryan Harris has that and the response from her Republican opponents. Abortion quickly became the big issue in this midterm election and Democratic incumbent Patty Murray just told a group of veterans fighting for the right to choose that she's demanding freedom as states restrict abortions. Republicans right here in the Senate have proposed a national abortion ban as well. Well, not on my watch. While Mrs. Smiley has been clear she's pro-life, she wasn't specific when I asked her about exceptions for cases of rape or incest, but... Medical ethics, you will always protect the life of a mother. I will fight to ensure that women in Washington state have affordable, timely access to contraception, health care, child care. Smiley also tells me she's been very clear in her opposition to a national abortion ban and that she respects the will of Washington voters, whom she says decided on this issue long ago. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. In Snohomish County, a state lawmaker will now serve double duty as a county council member. On Thursday, the council voted unanimously to appoint Democratic State Representative Strom Peterson to fill a vacancy in the District 3 seat. He was one of three finalists for the position after Stephanie Wright stepped down in August to take a position with the county executive. But Peterson's appointment comes with controversy as he will be serving as a lawmaker in two governments at the same time, which will be a balancing act when the state legislature reconvenes in January. Peterson will serve out the remainder of Wright's term and tells the Everett Herald he will run for a full four-year term next fall. Could decriminalizing hard drugs help clean up the state's drug problem? Well, that's the controversial argument from one state lawmaker who will once again introduce a bill along those lines in the next legislative session. Northwest News Radio's Carlene Johnson has that story. Democratic State Representative Lauren Davis hopes to decriminalize most instances of drug possession and expand treatment and support services. 
She argues incarceration of people suffering from addiction rarely works to turn their life around. Removing criminal penalties for exhibiting symptoms of a substance use disorder, which is a chronic treatable brain disease. And that's what decriminalization is. It simply means you're not um, punishing individuals for having substance use disorder. She did support a bill that recently took effect that can involuntarily civilly commit an addict if there are offenses within a set period of time. Extremely, extremely effective for this population. And we're about to see the fruits of that when that bill rolls out. At this point, the infrastructure is not in place to accommodate the large number of individuals who would qualify for that commitment. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. Now those opposed to decriminalizing hard drugs say it has failed in the city of Seattle where personal use amounts have been legalized. The Seattle Redistricting Commission has proposed a neighborhood swap as they redraw the district maps before next year's election. Redistricting for congressional and legislative districts was done last year, but because there haven't been any races for the council's district seats since the 2020 census, the commission has had some extra time to draw the maps. Under the latest proposal, Magnolia and Fremont would swap districts. Consultant Mary Ulrich says all of Magnolia would move to District 6 and... In order to make the population work was to move the Fremont neighborhood into District 7. Dan Strauss represents District 6, Andrew Lewis, District 7. Now, according to the Times, Strauss's constituents would become more conservative under the new maps, while Lewis's district would shift to the left. A final map is due out in mid-November. And finally this week, after the United States Supreme Court backed a local former football coach who came into national fame for preying on the field with players after games, there have not been any sweeping changes as one might have expected. Northwest News Radio's Eric Heinz takes a closer look. When the court ruled in favor of Bremerton High School coach Joe Kennedy's right to prey on the field after games, there were predictions of dramatic consequences. But the Associated Press reports three months after the decision, there's no sign that large numbers of other high school coaches have been newly inspired to follow Kennedy's high-profile example. Some public high school coaches in Alabama, Oklahoma, and Tennessee acknowledged feeling vindicated by the ruling and said they would continue to pray with students. There's wide public misconception on the case, as Joe Kennedy was not fired, but was on a one-year contract, and the head coach who hired him has since left the school. The Bremerton School District offered him his former position, but he has so far not decided whether to accept. Eric Heinz, Northwest News Radio. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Podula. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.